What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sam Newton, an assistant professor of law at the University of Idaho and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Sklansky, the Stanley Morrison professor of law at Stanford Law School, about his new book, A Pattern of Violence. David Sklansky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. David, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I was a federal prosecutor for seven years in Los Angeles, um, and uh, then I became a law professor, uh, starting off at UCLA, then I taught for a while at Berkeley. Now I'm at Stanford, where I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence, and I'm one of the faculty co-directors of the Stanford Center for Criminal Justice. Thank you. Um, You mentioned the George Floyd killing in this book, and the verdict was just read today. This podcast obviously isn't coming out necessarily today, but um, I'm wondering if you would comment on the case, especially as it relates to your book. Well, I don't think that the verdict um, is very surprising. Uh, The prosecutors put on a strong case and um, the conduct here was uh, pretty appalling and horrendous. I think the the bigger question is what this case means for the future of police reform. Um, And that I I think is is harder to say. Um, We uh, put a lot of weight on criminal trials in this country as the way that we deal with police violence. Um, And that means that the vast majority of the police killings in this country are not gonna result in criminal convictions, notwithstanding what we saw today. There are roughly a thousand people who are killed by the police every year in the United States, and most of those are never gonna result in criminal convictions, partly because of biases inside of the criminal justice system, because of some unfair advantages that the police have, and because of ways in which victims of police violence Um, are uh, insufficiently valued by the legal system. But the truth is that even if we fixed all of those biases, most police killings still wouldn't result in criminal convictions because most of them aren't crimes within the law's narrow definition of crime. Um, it's, It's criminal in a broader sense, though, that a thousand people are killed by the police every year in the United States. And what we really don't have is an institutional apparatus for systematically addressing and treating as a national scandal and a national emergency, the thousand people a year who get killed by the police and figuring out what systems and institutions need to change to avoid that. 
Yeah, and I would say fundamentally, this feels like a really strong argument of your book that really thinking sensibly about criminal justice requires us to think sensibly about violence and, and how we're de defining it or talking about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it requires us to see that um, uh, the, the violence uh, that results in a thousand people being killed by the police every year is violence. That doesn't mean that all of those officers should be convicted. Doesn't even mean that all of those officers should be uh, fired or even disciplined. Um, but it means that we need to start by recognizing the violence, treating it as violence, treating it as serious, um, and treating it as uh, as something that raises the same level of concern that that violence generally raises. Yeah. So tell us um, how you came to write this book. Well, part of it has to do with what we've been talking about, the ways in which um, police violence isn't adequately addressed. I've been teaching and writing about criminal justice for a couple decades now. And over the course of that time, there have been two big stories, uh, I would say, in criminal justice in the United States. And they're both tragedies. One is uh, mass incarceration which has uh, ruined lives, sapped communities, and been a, a national train wreck of, of decades-long proportions. Um, the other uh, is the collapse of police reform. When I started teaching um, and writing about criminal justice in the 1990s, police reform was widely viewed as a great success, as a model, in fact, for reform of other institutions. Today, it's, it's hard to find anybody who thinks that police reform has been a great success in the United States. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the failure to take violence seriously, the failure to take police violence seriously. Similarly, I think a lot of mass incarceration has to do with the way in which violence is treated in criminal law. And um, in some ways, you, you have opposite mistakes. With regard to the, uh, the violence carried out by criminal defendants, the law often makes too much of violence. We treat violent offenders as a category apart, um, a, a category that we can mark off as not deserving mercy, needing incredibly stiff sentences, um, and... Um, not deserving second chances. Um, whereas uh, with police violence, we do kind of the opposite, or we have done kind of the opposite for a long time of, of not paying in enough attention, not treating violent police misconduct as any different from regular police misconduct. For example, in, in, in criminal procedure law, um, we don't draw much of a distinction, say, under the Fourth Amendment between a police officer grabbing me and throwing me against the wall or a police officer ordering me to stop. Those are both treated as stops under the law. They are analyzed the same way constitutionally. Um, and in, in, in just the way that criminal procedure law tends not to make much of violence, I think uh, the police reformers of the 1980s and 1990s downplayed the significance of police violence allowed it to uh, fly under the radar. And I think that's a big part of the reason why we got to a place 
where policing seems so much in crisis today. So I was interested in, in how violence seems to be at the root of both major problems in criminal justice in the United States and um, how in both cases it seems to be a problem of, of not thinking sensibly about violence, not thinking clearly about violence, thinking in confused and ultimately harmful ways about violence. So that, that was the idea of the book, to try to sort all that out, figure out how does the law think about violence? Why does the law think about violence in some ways, in some case, in situations, in other ways, in other situations? Um, and I was interested in three different kinds of ideas about violence. Yeah, um, this is your, this is your uh, argument in chapter one. Yeah. So I started out the book by, by trying to pull apart three different uh, ways, three different kinds of uh, ideas about violence that the law um, has uh, inconsistencies with regard to. So first, uh, there are questions about how significant violence is, how much of a difference it makes when something is violent or nonviolent. Second, there are questions about how we define violence um, because the boundaries turn out to be way more complicated and way more controversial than we often assume. And then third, there are questions about how violence operates or how we, how we think about the mechanics of violence. Do we think that violence is a product of people's characters or a product of the circumstances in which they find themselves? Do we think that violence tends to um, spiral out of control, or do we think that violence tends to be self-correcting? Those kinds of questions. Yeah, and in chapter one, you also mention in this kind of slipperiness idea of you know the definition that there are race, gender, class constructions of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a, a lot of that has to do with uh, the inconsistencies in how ideas about violence are uh, invoked. Um, and with the vagueness of the category of violence. Because um, when we treat violence as a category apart, um, and when we treat violence as an easy way to divide up the world um, of offenders and distinguish between offenders who uh, deserve mercy and understanding and, and offenders who just deserve judgment. Um, we're relying on a category uh, that uh, we then have to define, and it's defined in ways that are vague and inconsistent, and the, that those vagaries and inconsistencies open the door for racial bias, uh, class bias, uh, and um, other forms of uh, bias and prejudice to shape how the concepts get employed. Yeah, you also talk about the role of fear in this as well. Yeah, um, because I mean, a, a lot of our responses to violence have to do with the sense that violence is scary and uh, we need to keep it under control. Um, but what we often don't recognize is that we define violence in ways that don't track necessarily um, the most serious forms of violence um, out in the world. And also, when we think of violence 
as um, uh, when we think viscerally about violence, um, the things that wind up counting as violence and getting called violence are the things that strike us as frightening. And those that's a category that, that is defined often, unfortunately, by race. So uh, an African-American carrying a gun is more likely to be deemed violent, for example, than a white person carrying a gun by white Americans. Yeah. And you point out that, uh, I mean, on top of this, most people won't condemn all violence like Gandhi or whatever. They might even celebrate it. Yeah. So we we talk uh, sometimes as though violence is beyond the pale. And uh, we... Um, And that violence really is and should be a category apart. Um, But um, almost nobody thinks that all violence is wrong. Um, Or if they do, they define violence so that the things that they approve aren't considered violence. So uh, uh, Trump was an extreme example of this, but in some ways he helped, he kind of helpfully made visible things that often um, are subtler and harder to discern. So uh, Trump, during his campaign and then when he was president, regularly talked about the violence of protesters on the left, the violence of anti-police protesters, the violence of Antifa. Um, But uh, when he was describing his own supporters, whatever they did, he would talk about their strength, um, their toughness. And th- that's a different way. Those, those are way, words for the same conduct just by people that we approve of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this kind of relates to your argument a little bit in chapter two, which is you talk about the how the criminal law has this relatively new concept that violence is a part of a person's character, not necessarily situational. And, you know, how are we treating accused or convicted violent criminals differently than those who commit nonviolent crime? Yeah. So I was surprised um, when I started researching the way the criminal law treats violence, how new uh, a number of our ideas about violence are in that area. It surprised me, first of all, to discover that uh, well into uh, the second half of the 20th century, it was rare to try to draw a sharp distinction between violent offenses and nonviolent offenses. Uh, That really didn't start until the 1960s. Prior to then, it's, it's not that people didn't think that murder and rape were particularly serious crimes but they didn't think that you could distinguish really serious crimes from less serious crimes simply by asking whether they were violent or not. And starting in the 1960s, uh, we began to talk that way. Um, We began to distinguish between violent offenses and nonviolent offenses, set aside special punishments uh, for violent offenses, restrict parole for people convicted of violent offenses, create diversion programs and drug courts and veterans courts and mental health courts that are unavailable to people convicted or in some cases accused of uh, violent offenses, 
restrict opportunities for reenfranchisement um, to nonviolent offenses, restrict opportunities for early parole and other forms of early release from prison uh, to people convicted of nonviolent offenses. Um, so uh, that all um, that all reflected a, a new a new view that we could use violence as a master category in criminal law. And then on top of that, as you as you mentioned, Sam, there there um, was also um, a new emphasis on violence as a characteristic of people's characters, as opposed to a characteristic of people's acts or a consequence of the circumstances in which they found themselves. And uh, you see that reflected um, in the ways in which the categories of violent offenders and violent offenses wind up getting treated as though they're synonymous. Um, And you see it in uh, the slew of three strikes laws and other forms of sentencing enhancements that were adopted in the 1980s, all laws that create long mandatory prison sentences for people convicted repeatedly of violent offenses. Um, But repeatedly in this case um, means usually uh, twice, although they're called three strikes laws, even uh, for the second offense, uh, these um, the, the, these mandatory penalties often kicked in, sometimes with the first offense, all of which reflected a view uh, that when somebody has been convicted of a violent crime, when somebody's committed a violent crime, um, th- that's a reflection that they are violent people um, and not that um, they committed, they did something violent. Um, and I, this too, I think, is tied up with race. I think that um, uh, that determination, that choice to treat violence as a characteristic of people's characters and not of their circumstances had a lot to do with the fact that as the 1960s wore on, the uh, people who were being convicted of violent offenses were more and more disproportionately young men of color. Yeah. And you mentioned that, and this is an interesting kind of distinction to me, that the law distinguishes between felonies and misdemeanors and that there's this proliferation of felony offenses, but yet maybe it's not making this the same type of distinctions with violent offenses. No, it isn't. I mean, and the, these, um, um, the, the mandatory, the stiff mandatory sentences apply generally to, uh, violent felonies, and uh, sometimes also to uh, sexual felonies, but always, but the the heart of these statutes was violent felonies. And and that's the basis on on which they were passed. Um, And they reflect the view that people who commit that violent crimes are a category apart and that violent crimes themselves are a separate category of crime. Um, and sometimes when I discuss um, this book with people, they'll say, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, it, it, violent crimes, it, there is a, just a fundamental difference between a violent crime and a nonviolent offense. And we should treat violent offenses 
categorically more seriously than we treat nonviolent offenses. Because when you do something violent, you are doing something much worse uh, than if you commit fraud or commit some other crime that doesn't involve violence. But the thing is, uh, almost nobody really believes that. And certainly our laws don't reflect that. Um, and uh, the, the evidence for that is the dramatic ways in which the, the legal category of violent felonies differs significantly from the ordinary, everyday meaning of, of violence. And I'll give you two examples. First, yeah. um, most states treat burglary as a violent offense, even if uh, nobody is hurt or threatened. And uh, often, uh, even if uh, nobody is home when the burglary takes place. Um, so that sweeps in lots of people into the category of violent crime and violent offenders, even if they haven't done something that in the everyday meaning of the word we would call violent. On the other hand, uh, every state distinguishes between simple assaults and aggravated assaults. And in, in every state, uh, an aggravated assault is a, fel is a violent felony. And in every state, a simple assault is not just not a violent felony, it's not a felony at all. So the difference between a simple assault and a violent assault is the difference between a minor offense that can land you in prison, uh, in jail, for less than a year, often less than six months uh, uh, in, in the laws of some states, and uh, a offense that can send you to prison for a decade or more, and that will get you tagged as a violent offender. So that means that an enormous amount rests on the difference between a simple assault and uh, uh, a, uh, an aggravated assault. But the line there uh, is itself quite vague. It depends on whether the uh, assault is deemed to have uh, involved a deadly weapon or um, the uh, infliction or threatening of serious bodily harm. And what counts as serious bodily harm is subjective and varies from state to state. And what counts as a deadly weapon similarly is uh, vague and varies a lot from state to state. What's consistent, though, across states is that the vast majority of instances where somebody attacks somebody else physically are not treated as violent felonies. They're not treated as felonies at all because they're just simple assaults. Yeah. And then as you, as you add to that race, class, and other issues, then it just becomes you know, really slippery again, to use your term. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it places an enormous amount of weight on discretionary determinations about whether we're going to treat a particular assault as simple or aggravated. And, and those kinds of discretionary determinations are exactly the kinds of things where you would expect racial biases and other forms of bias to rear, rear their heads. Yeah. In chapter three, you talk about criminal procedure, a class that I teach and enjoy. But, and you note that these procedures take an entirely different view of the police than they do about accused criminals. And you use the example of Dalry Map, but I think George Floyd is also, uh, you know, this brings up this issue today. It's really timely. And, and um, 
Why do you think there's this different standard for criminals and the police when we talk about violence? Well, I think it relates to um, a, a failure to take seriously um, police violence, to, to, to treat it as violence, to see it as violence, uh, even to describe it as violence. Um, we, we often don't even use the word violence when we talk about actions by the police. We, we talk about use of force. Some police departments don't even use the term use of force. They talk about response to resistance. Um, all of that reflects the view that you don't that we're uncomfortable treating what the police do as violent. Um, maybe because we think that calling it violent is necessarily to condemn it, and we think that uh, the use of force the response to resistance, the violence by police officers is a necessary part of their job. But saying that police officers sometimes need to use violence um, isn't the same thing as saying that their violence shouldn't be treated seriously or should be disregarded, which is often what we do. Um, And it's why in MAP versus Ohio, the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't talk at all about the violence of the invasion of Dolly uh, Dolly Mapp's house and her arrest. Um, It's why um, when uh, courts and prosecutors and police talk about stop and frisk, uh, they tend not to recognize or highlight the violence in that technique. In fact, the very, the very term stop and frisk is a euphemism as the Supreme Court itself pointed out in Terry versus Ohio. Nonetheless, we continue to talk about these stops in that way and not to take seriously the way in which they can involve uh, real violence, uh, particularly when the police are encountering uh, young men of color. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned stop and frisk and militarization and police killings as and courts are reading out violence. And then on the other side, you also mentioned that people describe the police with terms like police brutality. And and we have the the um, Floyd verdict today where you do have the public to some degree condemning uh, police actions. Yeah, I think that w- with regard to the police um... – there are um, th- there are people use different frames. Um, there f- there are defenders of the police who don't like to even talk about police violence. They talk about police about use of force or response to resistance, and they tend to see um, all police violence as situational as responding to the circumstances in which the police find themselves. Um, And people on the other side uh, tend to talk about police brutality, which is a way of pathologizing uh, police violence and treating it as a manifestation of either um, uh, an individual officer's pathological approach to policing or 
the pathology of, of a department as a whole or the, the pathology of the profession as a whole. Um, so you, what gets left out of this debate, though, the debate between people who see police violence as situational and describe it as use of force and the people who see it as an individual pathology, a departmental pathology, or an occupational pathology, and describe it as brutality, is the middle ground of seeing police violence as the outgrowth of systems and institutions um, operated by the police that wind up putting the police in situations where violence is a predictable response. Um, th that's why w when I look at uh, the Floyd verdict, I see a criminal case that needed to be brought um, and a verdict that seems to be justified. But I also see a response to George Floyd's killing that doesn't come close to meeting the moment because it addresses the criminal liability of an individual um, and not the systems that put that individual on the street, that kept him on the street, that trained him in particular ways, that didn't train the officers who were with him in a way that would lead them to intervene, um, and that collectively resulted in one more uh, police killing out of the thousand or so that we have every year. So until we start treating the thousand police killings a year as a national emergency, and still, until we start treating it as uh, a, 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 each killing at the hands of the police as an occasion, not just to ask about the individual culpability of particular officers, which is something that needs to be addressed and should be addressed, but also uh, what systems and institutions uh, need to be changed to avoid having the same thing happen again and again, we're not going to be making progress. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned a few different places in the chapter that you know the police have become more insular, more reactionary, more militarized. And they've but also on the public side, we pay attention or we don't pay attention and we there's a, developed a bit of complacency about the police and kind of a hands-off that maybe this is the moment for real genuine reform in police culture and in police departments. I, I do think it might be the moment. I do think that there's less of a complacency now than there was in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, I think the complacency in the 1980s and the 1990s was what allowed the rampant militarization of police departments in that time to fly under the radar screen. Um, I think the, the, the reason why police reform collapsed and why the hopes of the 1980s and the 1990s seemed to crash uh, was that there wasn't sufficient attention paid to the problem of police violence, um, really until Black Lives Matter uh, and the advent of social media and uh, cell phone cameras uh, brought uh, the attention uh, in in into everybody's hands um, and forced it onto everybody's, in in forced the country to pay attention. 
So we're now, we now have an enormous amount of focus on the police, as we should. Um, but look at Minneapolis, for example. Since George Floyd's killing, there have been two big debates that have consumed the city. One has to do with individual officers, with the trial of Derek Chauvin and later this year, the trial of the other three officers who were present when George Floyd was killed. And the other discussion has to do with whether we should defund or abolish the police. And that's in Minneapolis, as in many countries around the country, uh, that's been the source of great controversy, um, great consternation, and great public debate. Um, Ultimately, we're not going to abolish police departments in this country anytime soon. We're, we're not going to defund them either because a majority of the country across racial lines and across lines of, of, uh, of class doesn't support defunding the police. Um, so it, I, I think that the energy that's been put into uh, the defund movement and the energy that police abolitionists uh, have brought, the aspirations and concerns that they've raised are valid, legitimate, and important and need to be fully taken into account in moving forward. But I, I think in addition, we need an additional conversation, a conversation that's not about individual officers' criminal liability and isn't about whether we're going to defund or abolish the police, um, but about what we are going to do with the systems and the institutions of policing um, uh, until uh, we abolish or eliminate the police, if we ever do. Um, and and that means that means that that means serious attention to what it is that creates the conditions and the possibilities that result in something like the killing of George Floyd and how we prevent it from happening the next time. And we need to, we need to, to attack that question with the same energy uh, and creativity uh, and commitment that we do um, when there has been a major aircraft collision or when there have been medical mistakes that have resulted in deaths. We, we need to do the kind of root cause analysis systemically and, uh, in, um, and uh, thoroughly to allow us to figure out all, the whole range of steps that need to be taken to uh, make policing safer and less lethal. Yeah, and you could almost say this is a theme of your book, which is it's the more complicated. You've just taken the word violence and 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 spread this out, and yet the conversation needs to be looking at the root causes of these other things as well. Absolutely, and the root causes are are not always the same. Yeah. So, and I and I hate to just change the subject, but we do want to get through your book. So, chapter four, um, you talk about the role. Um, especially legal reform efforts on rape and sexual assault and domestic violence, that the role violence has played in those. Um, what, yeah, what would you say about that? Well, I, I think that um, if uh, criminal law is where we've made too much of violence um, and um, 
criminal procedures where we've made too little of violence. When we're dealing with violence uh, against intimate partners and sexual assault, both kinds of offense, and both these are forms of offending that disproportionately victimize women, we've made both kinds of mistakes um, at various times. So, and, and, and the history of the uh, anti-rape movement and the domestic violence movement um, take, uh, s- follow similar paths um, because they need to confront both kinds of mistakes. So initially, both movements um, in the late um, 19, in the 1970s and early 1980s highlighted the violence um, in the forms of victimization that they wanted to combat. Um, Rape is violence was the slogan of a large part of the women's movement that was confronting the ongoing problem of rape. Um, the, The very term domestic violence was picked and used to highlight the fact that this is violence, even though it's behind the doors of, of, uh, of a family or um, a residence. The pro- and, and I think that in both cases, highlighting the violence was an important move um, because it highlighted the fact that just as we now do with, just as we've done with police, there, we, we, we ignored or downplayed serious violence predominantly against women when it took the form of sexual assault or when it took the form of uh, intimate partner abuse. In both cases, though, the f- focus on violence proved to be uh, somewhat limiting um, because it wound up suggesting that the focus should be just on situations in which there was physical assault or physical abuse um, and uh, wound up leaving unaddressed adjacent behaviors and often behaviors that led to sexual assault or intimate partner violence. Um, So um, feminists began to push for recognition of the forms of sexual harassment that did not necessarily involve physical abuse. And uh, activists uh, addressing intimate partner violence began to focus on the ways in which um, forms of abuse that aren't themselves violent can go hand in hand and uh, serve as the prelude uh, to violent episodes. So uh, the people involved in combating domestic violence and people in the anti-rape movement having increasingly, I think, focused on uh, control and domination um, as the root evils to address. Um, And uh, there may be lessons here for how we think about violence in other contexts. Um, On the other hand, as I try to point out in in, in the book, you don't want to lose sight 
of the ways in which true violence, physical violence, is distinct. Um, and um, one of the ways in which, one of the reasons you don't want to lose sight of that is that there are connections between intimate partner violence and sexual, violent sexual assault on the one hand, and other forms of violence. For example, most mass shootings begin with uh, episodes of domestic violence. So when you know that, uh, it gives you an angle for thinking about how to think about mass shootings. Um, and you lose that connection if you don't pay attention to the violence in intimate partner violence. Yeah. And in chapter five, you also talk about juveniles and violence. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great example of something you mentioned earlier, Sam, which is the, um, role of race in the way that we think about violence, because uh, we have uh, a long history in the United States of treating juvenile offenders uh, in, with a separate system, the juvenile justice system, which was an American invention. It was a successful American invention, so successful it's been exported to most of the rest of the world. Um, the point of the juvenile justice system has, has never been um, to completely eliminate or remedy violence among juveniles. That, that's impossible. The point has been to keep juveniles out of a criminal justice system that would wind up hardening them, turning them into worse criminals, and damaging their lives in ways that are unjust and unnecessary. That's the that that's the the past of uh, of of the way we treat juvenile offending in the United States. In the 1980s, uh, we began to treat juvenile offending differently. We began to identify a subcategory of juvenile offenders that were taken out of the juvenile justice system and treated as adult offenders. And these were um, uh, juvenile offenders that were categorized as violent and more than that were categorized as super predators. Um, and they were described as not really juveniles. The idea was they, these, are, these were kids who had, had committed violence that was so upsetting that it suggested we, they shouldn't be treated as kids because they couldn't really be kids. Could re, kid, kids couldn't really create this sort of violence. And that determination, the determination that these weren't really kids, had a lot to do with race, with the fact that we were dealing with juvenile offenders who were disproportionately dark-skinned. Um, that uh, the, the, the racial prejudice here as elsewhere um, affected how violence was constructed. And it, in, in the context of juvenile offending, it led to this idea that there was a subcategory of juvenile offenders who weren't really juveniles and shouldn't be treated as juveniles, shouldn't be treated inside the juvenile justice system. Um, and that's taken a, a long time to unwind. We're still unwinding it. And David, yeah, there's, you also talk about 
there's some inconsistencies here as well, which is the law may not draw a distinction between the violence police use on children versus adults, for example, or even the Supreme Court, uh, Roper versus Simmons, Graham versus Florida, Miller versus Alabama, you talk about where the court says the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishments clause uh, should treat children differently. Yeah. So I, I think that in recent years, we've been returning to the idea that children are different and should be treated differently, even when they commit really awful uh, violent crimes. Um, and uh, the, the Supreme Court itself has recognized that in the cases that you just mentioned. Um, I, I do think, though, that there's, um, there's an underappreciated sense in which violence against children is linked to violence by children. Um, this is something that um, developmental psychologists have told us for decades. Um, it's something that restorative justice practitioners, um, social workers have told us for decades that when, when people are, vi are victims of violence, they're more likely to develop into people who themselves commit acts of violence. Um, but although uh, the, our laws created special categories for thinking about uh, violence by juvenile offenders and um, violence was treated as something that would take kids out of the category of juvenile offending and put them in the category of adult offending. And today um, we're returning to the view that when somebody's a juvenile, that makes things different. But we, we don't treat violence against juveniles as categorically different, either from uh, other treatment of juveniles or from violence against other kinds of people, except in the sense that often violence against juveniles is taken less seriously than violence against adults because uh, there's a longstanding sense that uh, physical punishment of, of children is uh, a necessary part of child rearing. You know, the old idea, spare the rod, spoil the child. And um, that idea, I think, um, is part of why the Supreme Court has never declared corporal punishment in schools unconstitutional. Schools are the only remaining institution where uh, public officials have license to uh, use violence um, as a disciplinary measure. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's also part of why I think uh, the violence of stop and frisk practiced against young people, particularly young people of color, isn't taken seriously as, as a kind of violence that we need to worry about because we, we often treat being subjected to violence as a normal part of how children are reared. And you take this even further, really, in Chapter 6, which is where you argue jails and prisons are the starkest and deadliest example of zones of exception, where, where the normal rules about violence seem suspended. Yeah. And they, so unlike schools, prisons are not officially places where officials are allowed to use uh, violence. Uh, 
violence in prisons is officially a crime just as much as it is outside of uh, prisons. Um, it, it's true that we, we still have the death penalty, which is a, a, in some ways the ultimate form of violence. But even there, we the, the, the penalty has evolved to downplay the physical violence of state killing, um, to uh, sanitize it. Um, so officially, violence in prisons uh, is forbidden, just like it is outside of prisons. Unofficially, though, violence in prisons is often treated as uh, par for the course and maybe even welcome. It's uh, an unofficial part of punishment. Um, we often, people often talk with, with relish and satisfaction about the violence that some particular convicted defendant will receive once he goes to prison, um, as though that's, that, that, that's, that there's something to be welcomed there, a kind of just retribution. That, and that kind of talk is common about sexual assault in particular and prison rape in particular. Um, so it's true that uh, we, we, we often treat violence in prisons as something that isn't worth worrying about to the same extent that violence outside of prisons is worth worrying about um, because the people in prison um, aren't, aren't quote unquote innocent, they've been convicted of crimes um, because uh, the, the violence of prisons is taken to be uh, an acceptable and maybe even welcome part of what incarceration means, and because violence in prison is taken to be inevitable. So nobody, will, judges won't say, for example, out loud, we think it's just as well the prisons are violent places. But what they will say out loud is there's almost only so much you can do. Prisons are inevitably violent because the prisoners who get sent there are violent. But in fact, the rates of prison violence vary enormously from state to state, from system to system, from uh, institution to institution. And they varied enormously over time. So what the variation says loud and clear is violence in prison is not inevitable. We can have safe prisons. We do have safe prisons in the places and at the times when government officials have decided that it's important for the prisons to be safe. Yeah. In your, in your last chapter, chapter seven here, you, um, and I wasn't expecting this, which was interesting, your, your uh, discussion of the first and the second amendment. And their parallels with and the issues that they raise about violence. Yeah, well, I talked about them because I think the First and Second Amendment are yet other places where ideas about violence get employed. Um, so, and in in both of these areas, um, violence is not treated as a category apart. Um, and in in both of these areas. Uh, violence is treated as a reflection of people's character more and more and not as a reflection of circumstance. So I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So neither the First Amendment doesn't treat 
uh, speech calling for violence, either on the internet or in a political rally or in a violent video game, um, any different than any other kind of speech. We have special rules for obscenity, and obs but, but obs obscenity law only focuses on speech that's offensive because of its sexual conduct. Speech that's offensive because of its violent conduct gets no special treatment. Um, and part of the reason for that is uh, the, the, the Supreme Court's confidence that speech isn't going to make people violent who weren't fundamentally violent to begin with. And if they are fundamentally violent to begin with, they're going to be violent no matter what kind of speech they are exposed to. Similarly, um, a lot of Second Amendment law and a lot of the stand your ground laws that have proliferated around the country are based on the idea that uh, the use of force and the use of threatened force in particular, and even more particularly, the use of threatened lethal force from the barrel of a gun isn't necessarily bad. It, de it depends on who has the gun. And if it's not a fundamentally bad person, then we don't even talk about carrying a gun or, we, or, or wielding a gun in a way that seems threatening as violence. We talk about it as self-defense. Um, so I think that those attitudes towards violence deserve to be interrogated and compared to the very different assumptions about violence that we often make in criminal law. And we're going to need to do that, by the way, um, as the Supreme Court continues to expand the Second Amendment, because a lot of criminal procedure law is based on the idea that uh, the police should be stopping people, frisking them when they think that they may be armed um, and removing their weapons. But that, none of that makes sense if people have a legal right to be carrying weapons and, and you, the police aren't, aren't in a, can't assume that when somebody has a weapon or even a concealed weapon, that it's necessarily illegal. Yeah, I think the term you use is those, those two rights are on a collision course. Yep. And the court will have to obviously resolve that. So the challenge I think is really you've, I, I found this book fascinating. Um, it made me not look so simplistically at violence. And as you say, we need to learn how to define it sensibly to understand its significance and how it functions. So David, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, what is your next project? Well, I'm continuing to work on some projects relating uh, to this book. Uh, at at the, the Stanford uh, Criminal Justice Center, we've started a new project, the Regilla Project, that uh, focuses on women incarcerated for killing their abusers. With students uh, at Stanford Law School, I've, I've uh, also been working on ways in which uh, particular functions can be shifted from police departments uh, to other agencies to minimize uh, violent encounters between police um, and um, the public. Um, beyond that, I'm, I've been researching and I will soon begin writing a, a new book on um, uh, populism um, and criminal justice. 
Oh, wow. That sounds yeah like an interesting project. And it sounds like your other one is related to putting your ideas into action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, take care. Thank you very much, Sam.